0: Welcome back to another episode of Almost Better Than Silence. I'm your host, Doug Coleman, and I'm here today with the other co-host, Brendan McCullough, and we have a special guest with us today. We have Justin Ma, a game developer responsible for FTL and an upcoming game that I'm not sure if we can talk about, but we'll find out. How's everybody doing?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Doing good. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I've, I've been a big fan of FTL for a while now, so... I'm very excited to be able to talk about it with someone else. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I gotta imagine, like, I know looking into it a bit, you you and, um, the co founder of the studio, uh, yeah, Matthew. Matthew, you guys played a lot of, like, board games. So was that the inherent, like, inspiration, I guess, or, like, driving force for FTL?
2: I think the, the core,
1: the core driving force
2: was just this feeling of wanting to play a game where you, feel like the captain of a ship rather than feeling like a pilot or a commander of a fleet but just literally the captain yelling at crew um the a lot of the the game inspiration did come from board games you know stuff like ballastar galactica and red november and later space alert Mm -hmm. we played a lot of board games when we were living
1: in china oh yeah everyone always dreams of them in the picard seat like as the captain or like running things and after playing FTL, I've firmly got a like solid understanding that I do not want to ever be captain of anything. I never want to be the <laughs> boss because <laughs> it's FTL is a great example of that, where literally everything's on fire and like you have to coordinate everything, and you have a guy invading the cloning bay, and you have to shut the doors. The security cameras are out, so you can't see anything, and it's just mass chaos every single time. <laughs> or maybe I'm just not good at that game. No, that's that's
2: that's the name of the game, really. I find it interesting because. Um, I really thought that having the pause functionality would be able to cut back on some of that, that gut fear and panic, but it, it kind of really doesn't for most people. Not a lot of people can actually pause and just like actually sit back and calm down. But, um, generally speaking, I, I do find that games that involve stress and pressure are way more enjoyable for me, at least, um, cause I don't find myself playing a lot of games that are purely relaxing.
1: Yeah. Well the the pause function definitely helps. Like that's the only way I've been able to beat it. But it is tough when you do have that adrenaline going once everything kinda starts falling apart and you're you're in a you know squirrel panic mode. So you don't have the forethought of to think like pause, take a breath, you know, hit the priorities. Um but it definitely helps that game to make it more uh forgiving, I guess I would say.
2: Yeah, I definitely would not want to be a captain of a ship without
1: a pause time, but... Yeah, ah, uh, jeez. <laughs> but with that game, um, I noticed with the free update you guys eventually gave out, was that um, was that for everyone who already had the game? Or was that like a DLC pack, like later, that if you bought the game after that update, you had to buy it separately?
2: Yeah, it's been a while since all this. Um, that mm-hmm. was... Uh, we were trying to get the game onto iPad, and then during the process of uh, working on that, uh, um, we were just gradually adding minor things that we had intended to release in the original game, but just didn't have time for. And so as those features sort of build up gradually, we just decided to rename it into the advanced edition, because it was actually quite a bit of content. That was just given out for free uh, to anyone who had owned the game and anyone who bought the game later. Um, mostly because it was kind of what we pictured the full game to be from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, in retrospect, it may have been a better business decision to just actually sell it for a couple bucks. But, um, but yeah, we pictured it as just part of the game entirely. Entirely, so we just gave it away for
1: free. Uh, That's yeah. awesome. I know from a business, you might have made a little more by just adding it on for like two ninety nine. But I know from a like consumer relationship standpoint you've definitely earned my you know loyalty with that just one day i saw steam downloading i was like oh what's this oh it's a little i thought it would be like uh maybe a concept like art book or something or maybe like a little additional soundtrack or something and then i get in and there's a new alien race and like new ships and like this whole expansion it's just like oh my god just for free blew my mind hell yeah Uh, but with uh particularly the new race the Lannis, Lanius, never actually
2: said. Yes, Lanius. Lanius.
1: Um, I noticed they were particular, like a interesting race, because they sucked the air out of the rooms. And talking with my friends, I suggest that a legitimate strategy with them, if you have a ship full of them, is to open up all the doors and have the entire ship suck, like devoid of air at all times. And then, yeah. if you are invaded by a pirate or something, they're already dying. Because of the oxygen deprivation. Do you think this yeah. is a, a legitimate strategy? Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I there love stuff go. like that. Um, I when playing with airships, I generally, you know, cause I think you start with a human or something in airships. Mm-hmm. Um, I would often just have like one or two rooms or a hallway that just has oxygen and everything else be vented and then upgrade the doors as fast as possible. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. It's, I love, I love stuff like that with, with this game. The, the fact that you could come up with these sort of bonkers
1: strategies that work. (laughs) It's, it's great to imagine it. It'd be as if the ship was like a car, you'd be driving down the freeway with all the doors open in your car. It's like, no, 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 this helps. This is, it's all part of the plan.
2: Don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Don't worry about gravity.
0: (laughs) Um, where did your introduction to the game development scene, like where did that start? When did you get involved? Did you go to school for that?
2: Um, so I was a little lucky growing up. My dad worked at uh, Acclaim for a long time and then Activision and some others as well uh, as I got older. But, um, mm-hmm. so when I was a kid, uh, you know, I'd go into his office and play like early versions of Mortal Kombat or NBA Jam or something. Um, so the concept of working of games being something that are developed rather than just a pure entertainment was kind of, uh, taught to me at a young age. When I went to school, there was no such thing as, uh, game dev courses or degrees or anything like that. Um, everyone I spoke to at studios, once I've actually decided I wanted to go into games, which was during, uh, undergraduate, they basically said that your undergraduate degree didn't matter at that time. Everyone I sp- talked to was like, used to be a lawyer or, you know, got an architect degree or was in sciences, stuff like that. But um, everyone said that to at least take some programming classes just so you have a good foundation, even if you're not going to be a programmer. So I did that. But um, I got into the industry in China. Um, we were having not particularly great time finding jobs after college in the U.S. So my wife, my then girlfriend and I uh, moved to China and in retrospect, it was a great opportunity to get into video games because uh, I was able to get in as a nobody with no particular skills and then build a bit of a, um, resume, I suppose, uh, working in 2K in Shanghai. Uh, and then afterwards, when Matt and I, who both worked together, we quit, uh, we decided we worked on FTL and then, uh, just for fun on the side. And then that turned into something way bigger than we pictured. So, uh. It's a bit of a weird, weird loop towards to getting into indie games, perhaps.
0: So, is FTL your first, like, uh, fully fleshed out project? Uh, or did you, like, work on some other games before that?
2: No, FTL was our first, first fully fleshed out project together. Um, I worked on a few games in 2K Shanghai, um, but this was our first that we worked on just totally separately by ourselves. Initially, we were planning on just doing a couple prototypes before we both left China, but it did—it got some pretty impressive feedback pretty early on, so we just decided to go all in on it and try and finish it.
1: Definitely. Yeah, I mean, and the feedback you got, a few nominations from like different gaming, um, I guess, contests or uh, groups, and you figure you guys did a Kickstarter with a simple goal of 10,000. You know, for a game that's pretty good, and then you guys got two, like two hundred percent over that. You got yeah, two hundred two thousand. Yeah, 2000 percent.
2: Yeah, that was an interesting time because we, well, right when we did the Kickstarter, was it mm-hmm. was prior to anyone else really picturing it as games like game funding. There's maybe like four projects, but right during our campaign, right when it started, was the same time that uh, Double Fine launched their adventure game kickstarter which uh really if you recall just everyone started paying attention to kickstarter and we were one of the few games on the platform so that that's why i attribute to the huge uh influx of money and and eyes we initially were just sort of assuming that the kickstarter project would be a way to legitimize
1: getting money from family and friends (laughs) i mean i feel like that's what it's become now because Since you guys have done it, there's, uh, you know, new five new games every day on Kickstarter, like, trying to crowdsource, but they definitely aren't reaching the level you guys had or following through and actually finishing a lot of the projects. Do you think funding a game through Kickstarter is a plausible way, like, or do you think development is too bizarre and takes too many left turns to actually, like, secure a finite amount of funds? Like, you guys were lucky because you had so much more than you were, uh, estimating. I think the reason why we were able
2: to release and not be a problem was largely because the game was nearly done in terms of what our scope was and what the plan was. It, it only took a couple months after that, um, to finally release it. So I I'd absolutely think Kickstarter is a viable platform now or any sort of crowdfunding. Um, but, it seems you have to be a lot smarter about it nowadays to A, get attention, B, have a campaign that seems uh, viable, both from a practical standpoint, like how to use the funds and also from a consumer standpoint with the whole, you know, vision of what is appropriate from the consumer's eyes. Money wise is generally very different from how much money things actually take. So a lot of companies now, for example, will secure outside funding and then get like use the kickstarter to gauge response mm-hmm. and then actually use it to get additional funding from other places so it's like a, it's now just one of many means of course if you're having a small small company with a very small game just getting enough money to pay for food and rent for for a year or so is of course another way that you can use crowdfunding
1: yeah i've seen it more of kind of an advertising tool for like the pr company now where it's just like to both get the name out there and, like you said, gauge the response as opposed to, because Shenmue 3 is not going to be fully funded with $2 million or something. Yeah. It's going to be a lot more than that.
2: Yeah, Some sometimes I hear they'll just say, you know, if you reach your goal, we'll give X more, much more money. So it's it's like, it instead of becoming, you need need to pay for the whole game as fans, it's like, hey fans, show these people that we deserve to get money. Um, so it's like it has shifted a little bit Um, i think it's pretty interesting the way these perception and uh and and use of these platforms has gradually been changing and i'm I'm sure it'll change again in another few years
1: yeah if you even think about it it's just it's not even been a decade yet and they've already kind of revolutionized the gaming industry and yeah it's already kind of turning against them with so many games being funded and then nothing really coming out of them so people are getting a little bitter or cynical about Kickstarter. like everyone seems to have one now or a patreon or something else
0: yeah
2: i think a
1: healthy amount of skepticism will be better for the
2: game developing um atmosphere in general but yeah as as long as people
1: fans don't get 100 percent distrustworthy or totally burnt out Mm mm-hmm Uh, I think it's fine. I think it was actually kind of abnormal with how many projects were started on Kickstarter early on and were successful and followed through. with. I think that's the odd thing, and that now that we're seeing some of these people popping up on Kickstarter, taking the money, and then disappearing forever, is actually what's more to be expected. And we just had a lucky break early on with like guys like you and Double Fine and other stuff. Yeah, I guess it's just
2: because, uh, you know... The first group to go in there are essentially like people using it for legitimate reasons and then those who see it as an opportunity to make money come later once once the the proof of
1: concept has has passed I mm-hmm. guess and it also helps when you have like for you guys you actually have the game arguably pretty much done like you have a lot of it worked out and made as opposed to some guys who simply have a uh, concept art and that's it and yeah, they throw yeah, a Kickstarter probably. up, and it's like, that's, that's nothing. Like, you know, sorry, but that's really nothing to work on.
0: Yeah, that's understandable. Um, when you make more money than you're anticipating, does that give you the desire to, like, move, uh, get your game on other platforms, say, like, PlayStation and Xbox? Or did you strictly, when you were developing this game, did you seek, seek out to only make a PC game?
2: Um, yeah, we never really had a contingency plan for making lots more money than we were expecting. And we didn't have the mind, manpower to just start throwing that money in new, uh, in new ways. But literally, like, for example, if we pursued getting on PlayStation, for example, that just means every moment would be spent working on doing that because we just have such a small team. Even if we wanted to hire more people, that just takes so much time. It takes so much time to hire someone. So yeah. everything would be a time delay. So we didn't actually end up you know, initially being able to capitalize on the additional funding prior to launch as much as maybe a larger company could have. Uh, because, I mean, we spent, you know, we got a lot better music uh, soundtrack. The FTL soundtrack was largely because of the funding. The Some of the other people we worked with, like getting a better writing and more content was possible, but we didn't, you know, just go and just send and open up platforms immediately for example um yeah. we are still completely committed to just pure pc release until at least after the, the the launch of the game and when we got a little more time to be able to actually try and think and plan for other platforms mm-hmm.
0: do your future games do you have that aspiration to make it onto other platforms or kind of as you grow you'll kind of cross that bridge as you get there
2: yeah so um with Into the Breach, it's a bit of a different situation because unlike FTL, I can picture it working with a controller. It works pretty fine with a controller. FTL, we never were able to get anything enjoyable with a controller. So uh, that, that was just pretty much cutting out 80% of other platforms. Yeah. But uh, with Breach, it's more of a possibilities. S- still, we are very much like we're just doing PC first and worry about the other stuff later. But... um. I can't say it wouldn't be fun to have it running on Switch or or Vita or theoretically uh, just you know traditional consoles. I don't know how it how it'd be on a big TV. Maybe it'd be good.
0: <laughs> yeah, perhaps mobile.
2: Yeah, maybe <laughs> uh, mobile. Mobile is such a can of worms.
0: So <laughs> That's the truth.
2: Like just the amount of. I mean, obviously, when it what's worthwhile, it's absolutely worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And, just getting it to run on everything is just such is so difficult. But um, who knows?
1: I, I won't discount anything, but I won't make any promises either. That's I think, fair. I think that's a safe bet. Um, but I I noticed with the Kickstarter, I f- I saw on this otherwise because I never found this actually in the game. But one of the tiers of the Kickstarter was actually to make a race in the game for FTL, and I never even saw the crystal race. It's like this secret group. <laughs> What? Where did that come from? <laughs> like uh, the race themselves, or just
2: how absurd it is to find them?
1: I mean, I guess both, because like I said, I, I've beaten it, I think maybe three or four times, and I've put in maybe 60 hours into the game, and I've never seen them. So is it like...
2: Yeah, so the way you can, for those who don't know, there's a the various ways to unlock different ships in the game, and the crystal ship, the way you unlock it is kind of notorious for being how absurdly difficult. It's since been changed so that you can unlock it without following the giant quest line through uh, just winning with the Lania ship, I believe. Uh, um, you can unlock the Crystal Cruiser. But the way to actually get um, it legitimately is finding a pod bringing the pod to a specific place in the Zoltan sector and then going to a rock home worlds and then and successfully going and finding the right node there to then jump to the crystal place and then surviving in the crystal sector to be able to unlock the ship. Um, it's uh, the reason why it was so absurd was you know i I love the chain in Splunky, uh, meaning the the way you can get to. The City of Gold in the original, or mm-hmm. the um, or Hell in the remake, um, and we were also having a lot of fun with our Kickstarter backers and beta testers to just keep throwing harder and harder things for them to find, and I think that was a dangerous path to follow <laughs> <laughs> um, because the Crystal Ship was just one of those like I want to give one last hurrah to them right in the, when the game releases, and uh, when testing the game, I. When trying to test that specifically, there's like three runs in a row that I got most of the way there and had the possibility to unlock it, and that was apparently a very disproportionate. <laughs> that was not not a not a accurate representation of the likelihood. As uh, just even to have those lo- things line up is like maybe 50 percent, and uh, of games could even have the possibility of of getting those um, all lined up appropriately. So I kind of regret making it so, making content in the game that's interesting and challenging be so locked behind a luck slash unnecessary knowledge tree. Mm-hmm. But, um, I kind of think it was to the game's benefit in the long run because there's this weird air of mystique and, and sort of secret knowledge that's being handed down between people. So it, it had a lot of opportunities for, for fun for people but uh a lot of frustration and <laughs> definitely as well. there's like
0: a, a certain niche audience for that like of like completionists that just eat that shit up so i'm sure there's a handful of your fans that were like very grateful that you included it
2: yeah and then you get the random person who's like oh i unlocked that on my second run <laughs> and then everyone else just hates them but yeah
1: <laughs> a little bit because you saying how to do it just triggered all these memories of times where i'm like oh here's a crystal man i'm like oh i wonder what this is about and i go to a rock homeworld it's like oh but i don't have the necessary like crew member to negotiate with like now i'm realizing how close i've been so many times without realizing it oh now i'm mad because <laughs> uh i was even playing it last night before uh, the interview and just The game, there's so many different branching events, and you can do this if you have this, or you can do that if you have this guy, but with this technology, you can get bypasses so you don't need them, and just, there's so many different ways everything can sprawl out, like, I don't, I don't know how you guys could even do something that big, like, this isn't, like, a like, branching out, like, path, like, a few routes, this is, like, a redwood forest of decisions, like, it just sprawls all over the place. I think there's, there's only a
2: couple things that have like multi layered connections like that very, but I think the, the way it ends up working in FTL is just everything works independently from each other and, um, in a very small way. Like, for example, you just check if you have a certain. Um, item or person or whatever in any specific tiny event. Mm-hmm. And then when you just keep adding stuff and you just keep adding content, there's so much. There's like two novels worth of text in FTL, but just when you keep adding this stuff to the game and allow them to interact with each other sort of seamlessly, then you can let the player build out their own sort of interesting stories of combos of odd events that happen um, out of pure luck together whereas if you tried to custom make a storyline that has so much branching trees and like a bioware style rpg or something like that mm-hmm. it it would just get exponentially more challenging and, and generally impossible to, to to make it feel coherent to, but if you just have everything sort of work independently of each other and then just say here we go here's your giant sandbox you can get a lot of interesting storytelling
1: opportunities Absolutely agree with that. Cause a lot of the backlash with Mass Effect 3 is you had all these different decisions piling up through three different games. And then at the very end, it's just this, this, or this. And they all barely really change anything. But, and that's one of the reasons I love, uh, FTL and like Binding of Isaac, another big rogue, like, came out around that same time is seeing all the different upgrades inter, interacting with each other and seeing what combinations of stuff you can get with. Definitely. Just all these different things. Um. But it's... uh Sorry, I just... I, I'm trying to think back. There's so many times, like, say there's one scenario where you find a man stranded on a planet in a cave and you can either take him up on the ship or you can abandon him on the planet. Is, yeah. is there a certain, like, percentage or certain, like, skill that has to be, like, something, some requirement that makes him sane? Or is it kind of just a roll of the dice where he's either crazy and attacks you or ends up become, becoming a new crew member to pull back the veil, I guess um,
2: mm-hmm. basically everything in FTL, if it can be programmed as simply as possible, that's probably the way it, it was made. So like, it. Uh, with those things, it's literally, I believe that's just a literal 50, 50 chance uh, of something okay. happening. Uh, there's also a couple triggers. Like I believe if you have the slug, you could sort of read his intentions, yeah. And if you have a med bay two, you could um, just heal him when you get up to the ship. And each of those, uh, I think, has their own pool of maybe fifty-fifty something happening. But um, okay. But yeah, there's no. <laughs> We're a big fan of you know playing you know, tabletop games, which just mm-hmm. in, in, involves straight chance and generally. The reason why it works is because you know it's straight chance. FTL, you don't get that so much where, you know, the the giant spiders, you don't know exactly what the chance of them is happening. But I'm perfectly fine just having it be a complete literal dice roll on what um and as you play the game, you may get more familiar with like the the cost benefit of, of various types of uh text-based challenges, but um, so you can sort of have a more informed decision of like, do I want to go on this asteroid? Because it's possible that something terrible will happen. Um, and so I much prefer the pure, uh, I don't know, agnostic random chance rather than having some sort of like, based on the situation, we shift odds or, or based on your previous choices, things get slightly. Mm-hmm. pushed in
1: some way or another i'm not a big fan of that personally yeah. okay there's a there's something relaxing knowing it's completely out of your hands like there's no way yeah, you could yeah. have stopped this and it's <laughs> like oh well but the last few times i've gone on a run through ftl i've encountered that guy that man in the cape almost every time and every time he goes crazy and kills one of my crewmates and <laughs> it just it's driving me insane to think like is there a way i could have stopped? like i know the slug uh, could help but if it like if I was somehow doing something wrong because it, I I enjoy the game, but now I'm kind of distrustful of everything in it Or it's like, oh, there's yeah. a abandoned ship that are asking for help. I'm like, nah, I can't help them because it's going <laughs> to backfire and hurt me or like, oh, there's pirates. And like, if you look the other way, they'll be fine. It's like, all right, I'll look the other way. I was like, oh, they came back and attacked you. It's like, what? Oh, everything's against me.
2: <laughs> yeah. The, the human path, uh, sorry, pattern fi- finding brain can cause problems like that sometime if we just get if someone, for example, gets uh, something that's a 30% chance of being bad but they get it three times in a row they'll probably never, ever, ever choose that other option Yep. I tried to try and do it again because they, they've just been so burned so hard in the past. But yeah, I don't know any way around that <laughs> <laughs> other than just uh, you know, I can't manually assure every gamer but just I, there are very few things that are just straight always bad in that game. Mm-hmm. Um, and we try to make that so that at least different people can have different feelings of 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 the likelihood of chance based on luck, I guess.
1: Yeah, there's, there's something great with the random stuff at end of just a simple dice roll, even in board games, where it's just like, oh, let's see, like D&D. It's just like, oh, I got 20, I'm automatically in but there's yeah. another game playing uh, Blood Bowl 2, which is based, quite literally fantasy football. It's football with fantasy creatures and monsters, but it's all tactics-based. It's all turn-based. You control every individual player. Um, the only thing related the football is the name, but everything in... Th- it was based off a board game, so everything in that is a dice roll. Every move you do, every uh, action you do is just a simple roll of the dice, whether or not you got it high or low enough. And As m- much as I it, it is the single most infuriating thing in all of my existence. Like, just the rage you feel of, like you said, getting uh, to pass this roll, you need to get a six. And the guy gets five sixes in a row and gets a touchdown. Versus you can't get a single tackle because you need to get a four or above and you just roll under it every single time. And it's just maddening
0: that's the thing though like we were we played D D on another podcast almost better than dragons and at one point we were cast into this underground and i remember mike our dm told me he's like you're gonna have to roll like 10 20s in a row to even climb this chain and i wanted to try but i didn't because it's oh, never yeah. gonna happen
2: the yeah i find that when you simulate die rolling in video games it bothers people way more than other forms of of randomness in video games as well and way more than actually if you give them a die in their hand. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe it's just the physical aspect <laughs> of an object um, that just reassures you rather than a RNG. But meanwhile, like I find, and is maybe evident by the huge surge of these games, that people, when playing video games, have no problem with the randomness involved in cards and drawing cards. Uh, but If you put a fake die on the screen or have some sort of percent chance or something, I feel like that bothers people way more in video games than people, even the same people who play a game on board game, if they play it on Uh, computer will be bothered more oh yeah uh, by die rolls
0: a perfect example of that is a game our listeners know that me and bren have played for years is uh talisman it was an 80s board game they put it on steam it's incredible but the thing about talisman is yeah you're rolling dice but like you'll literally fail a roll and get like a one and then it says do you have you have the option to use a fate a point and re-roll and no matter what i swear to god no matter what it's gonna be a one every time you re-roll like and i think it's like maybe even a flaw in their logic because like i just don't trust their dice and it made it gets me to the point where it's like i'm not even gonna waste the fate like i'll just accept the one the first time and hope for better luck next time
2: yeah you i think it's that that pattern finding part of the human brain that it's just there's this seed of doubt that (laughs) this is programmed by someone and therefore it could have some problem in it that just poisons the well whereas like you know, the die you see, it's, it's a cube. Like, I mean, it's probably not weighted.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, that, that little tiny hint of doubt is what throws a problem into everything for players as far as I could tell. So that's why, like, with FTL, we try to be as completely like, we don't mess with randomness at all. It's just random deal with it, um, as much as possible. And, and we definitely personally prefer that in video games than, like, XCOM. I believe that the, <sighs> the, the numbers XCOM. are true that they do. The percentages aren't actually real. Um, they're just sort of skewed slightly. But I don't know. I, I, but even if they don't, see, even if they are perfectly real, just the fact that that rumor
1: got to the point that I believe it is like a problem in itself. Like, yeah, uh,
2: it's it gets all dodgy.
1: XCOM's is a weird example of it because you'll have the enemies have a seven percent chance to hit and they'll critical shoot your guy through a wall which will then make him panic, to throw a grenade, which will then wipe out your other two medics on the side, versus your guy will be standing point blank in front of an alien and have a 99% chance and he misses. So it's, I feel like XCOM is the worst perpetrator of the, you know, statistics or percentage of hitting ends. You know, like, statistically, it's possible for him to miss. It's like, yes, but not seven times in a row. Like, in the same the way.
2: Problem, the problem is that humans are actually utterly terrible at thinking about percentages and, and chance and randomness. Like if you like, there's a whole study of, uh, you know, people trying to guess fake number, just guess random numbers over like, or even just a coin flip guessing coin flips. And like most people will never guess randomly five or six or seven tails in a row. But if you look at actually random generation thing, that's actually like not that uncommon. Uh, and so to get, I, I just think that's a flaw in our ability to perceive, um, per, you know, statistics and randomness.
0: Yeah, that just that's makes true. me think of right before my girlfriend and I play a bocce ball game, we'll rock, paper, scissors to see who goes first. And then sometimes we'll like, go like seven or eight times where they're doing the same thing. Well, obviously there's only three choices there, but still, like it's just ridiculous when the randomness kind of syncs up.
1: Yeah, totally. I think that's where it gets into trouble, where if it's just a coin flip or rock, paper, scissors, where it's only two options or three options, there's a degree of you can have you know, scissors 15 times in a row. That percentage is higher than if you're rolling a D20 and you get a natural 20 15 times in a row. Like that percentage of that happening is much smaller now. And I think that's why people get so frustrated with these games because like XCOM, I know the chance of this happening is anywhere from uh, theoretically from what they're showing me is one to 100%. But I know the actual coding of it might be, you know, maybe 70%, but it's the numbers just group up at a certain level. So I think that's why people get so infuriated when it happens so many times in a row, even if it's only three or four times in a row. But it's because you know it's out of a factor of seventy chances. But it yeah. is it is more it less of a random chance and more of a risk management game where you're just trying to yeah, reduce totally. reduce the worst outcome like FTL, where uh which is particularly tricky with FTL because scrap is the currency. And I was telling Doug earlier, almost every game I am just dirt poor because I have to spend all my money repairing the ship because <laughs> I'm so bad at it.
2: Yeah, I think the, the core, the core way to get better at the game is learning how to, uh, reduce and mitigate damage. Because if you can mitigate damage, suddenly you have twice as much money as you would otherwise, which just is a positive feedback loop of now you have better shields and now you have whatever. So, um, that unfortunately I think is a, Flaw in the game of, for some people, it just, it's just so standard to take damage. And it's like one of those skills that we never particularly teach people is, uh, pure damage mitigation. Whereas if that, if you learn that, like, man, you'll just, you'll be sitting pretty.
1: Mm hmm. Well, then that kind of plays into, uh, into the breach where it's less about fighting off the alien creatures that are invading and it's more of protecting the buildings and civilization on the map. So it's you know damage isn't as bad for the soldiers as would be in a regular like in an RTS game, where you're you know yeah
2: it definitely still has um I mean it it's hard talking about this because you know I I don't know how many of the details are clear to you guys but mm-hmm. there there's still a bit of that same atmosphere in terms of like um you have the power grid of the whole uh city which is persistent between battles so. If you're the structures are damaged, you're basically, it's effectively a HP bar that gets decreased over time. Mm -hmm. And so there is still an element of if you're ending up taking too much damage, you're going to lose out on other resources just to, to get the power grid back up and uh, running. And so you, I, from people that we showed the game to recently, um, it appears that it actually does end up feeling like sort of FTL loop. Uh, which is kind of surprising to me because it's it's a very different game in my mind. Mm-hmm. but um, but that specific element of like damage mitigation being the highest priority pretty much um, comes across, I think it comes across better in this game because it teaches you clearly that like, oh shit, this this building being damaged is so bad that like I will let my mech take the shot, die, and lose a pilot uh, rather than take damage. Um, which I think is maybe one of the more compelling elements of this, of Into the Breach is, is this sort of like uh, shifting of priorities cons- constantly, whereas like a, a more straightforward game like Advanced Wars would, you know, there's, there's very minimal things that you could potentially have hold this priority between different battles and everything it's just like it'll be the same thought process in every battle whereas with this um depending on the situation you're in maybe your pilot is the most important thing you need to protect or maybe um the mission objective or or the time pod that crashed or whatever is like so it's just shifting priorities based on situations i think is pretty compelling
0: definitely is is Into the Breach more or less isometric style as compared to FTL, which was top down?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a isometric grid based, very tiny map um, strategy game that in it's you know you could picture Advanced Wars in terms of like you know large small units that are just moving around and you move your squad, but it ends up actually playing more like a um, kind of like a puzzle game or like chess because there's a uh, very limited amounts of things that any individual unit can do. And uh, all of the enemy's options are clearly known to you, what the enemy's going to do. There's no like hiddenness. You're not trying to beat a fake player or something like that. It's just, here's the situation. How are you going to resolve the situation in the way that's most beneficial to you? So it's, it, we had a couple of people who say, I don't really like strategy games, but I really enjoy this. Or people who say, I don't really like puzzle games, but this is kind of interesting for a puzzle game. So it's kind of like, you know, somewhere in the spectrum between those, which is uh,
1: fun. Awesome. Huh. That's interesting to hear it. It's called as a puzzle game.
2: Yeah, it's it's not a puzzle game. Yeah.
1: Moment to moment, like, like here's something
2: that I'm looking at often can feel like a puzzle because it it's like, you know if you haven't seen the game um the enemies all telegraph their attacks very clearly so when you finish and end your turn you know exactly what will happen you there's no randomness there's no, none of that um and your job is to then either you know just kill a unit or more often shift or move or or manipulate or or uh you know status effect other units to be able to uh, have the outcome of the enemy turn go out in your favor. So if that means an enemy is attacking a building, if you push him to the side, he's now attacking an empty tile, um, or maybe he's attacking his own ally, and so you can get these sort of like chain reactions of like making the enemies do something you prefer them to do. Uh, so they, even now, I still get situations where I'll be in a weird situation, a weird scenario or fight that I haven't seen. Uh, where I will just stare at it, cannot come up with a good solution for a long time until I come up with some new way to use the units I had never used before. And which is pretty amazing as a game developer, um, to be able to have that experience from your own game and is one of the most compelling things about Into the Breach is just these sort of little aha moments of like, Oh, the first time that you attack your own unit to push him into the a uh, space that will let him do something else or stuff like that.
1: Cool. Yeah, I feel like it's always a good design of a good game when the players can think of a way to utilize a unit that the developers never saw. Like, it's still yeah. possible to use that and it shows that it's so in-depth and fleshed out as opposed to just, like, I have um, the shield-bearer and literally all he can do is predict damage it's like but what if you use a propulsion rocket to shoot next to him to shoot him across the field like I'm really excited to play this though when you make the comparison to chess I get a little nervous because I am also terrible at chess <laughs> well the benefit compared to chess is there's no human element right like, yeah I
2: think the hardest thing about chess is you're competing against a a you know Presumably intelligent other being that's trying its best to defeat you. Mm-hmm. Whereas the fun part of, uh, the, the current way the gameplay works in Into the Breach, it was largely, is in part inspired by how do we have to not make really complicated or good AI, basically. And so, Got <laughs> um, these, these really dumb Vec monsters can just pose huge problems while still being ridiculously stupid so it's, it's, this fun, it's this fun way of like oh god how could they be so stupid yet oh god how are I, how, how can I not stop them kind of feeling uh, like where you know there'll be a mine on the ground and you just stand next to the mine it'll just run up to try and hit you and just step on the mine you're like ah, oh, what an idiot <laughs> it's, it's to me I, I still chuckle every time I, I trick an enemy into just Running straight into the ocean and killing themselves or something. <laughs> um, so it's a good balance between uh, challenge
1: and humorously silly AI. <laughs> I've heard um, someone describe it, I think it was Rock Paper Shotgun. I was actually reading their interview with you. Um, that you, it's a uh, pretty common and good strategy to chain different attacks. And I immediately thought of this as like some sort of Rube Goldberg machine as a game.
2: Yeah. It- It's not, uh, it's maybe not to that extent of Mm -hmm. complexity. Uh, sometimes every once in a while we get a really cool chain of events that is awesome. But definitely when you're playing the game, it does force you, once you get to like a higher skill level, um, it does force you to sort of think in that, in those terms. Um, and like the best and most challenging and interesting solutions are often like very, Challenging to get the right order of operations. Like you need this unit to first move here, then the other unit attacks, which then can use this to pull this unit there. And so it's like a lot of those sort of forcing your brain to think laterally and a few steps ahead. Uh, while well not you know there's no time limit on these sort of player actions, so so you just can puzzle them out and figure out the best way. But but yeah, there's a lot of room for these sort of higher level strategies uh, of using your own units, which is uh, is always fun.
1: Oh, okay. So it's like the pause function in FTL, where you can just like take a break, figure out everything like ahead of time before you actually engage in all the action.
2: Yeah, and so you know, unlike some games where you know you you act with one unit to then see what happens as the outcome, which will then you know you have to plan for contingencies for the other units to potentially back them up. No, with this, like you know, literally everything that would happen. So it's just a matter of planning appropriately mm-hmm. and so f- once you get decent at the game generally you like look at the map you see the situation and then you form a plan for all of your units and then it's just a matter of going and doing all right duh, 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 duh. all right now they it all worked out the way um i had planned unless of course you you plan wrong and things go Some unexpected thing happens that throws a wrench in your plan. You
1: overlook a small feature and then you're the one running headfirst into a mine and being blown (laughs) off into the ocean.
2: Yeah, or like, you know, you do the order of operations wrong and, oh, crap, now I just pushed my unit back into the attack with the the side effect of this other attack that I didn't think about. Yeah, Stuff like that. But it is all very deterministic, so had you thought about every element it's not like it was a 50-50 chance that that would happen. It was just, it was just your mistake for not, you know, having
0: the foresight, you know,
2: having a full, yeah, having the foresight or having a full understanding of the way the mechanics work. Assuming that we don't, it's not our fault of showing you incorrectly, which has been the largest challenge of this game developing. I think has been the UI and making outcomes clear to the player when so many different weird elements can be occurring at the same time. Uh, that's like absurdly challenging.
0: Well, art- artistically speaking, was it challenging going from a top-down style to isometric? I'm, I'm sure it's like a whole different skill set.
2: Um, I think the hardest thing doing the art, because I do most of the art myself, but um, it's determining the art style. Once you have a style, once I have a few units in that specific angle and that specific lighting, Um, it's not that hard to keep making more. It's, but every time that you have to like come up with something that is a new sort of a new standard, a new principle is like that. It's uh, very, very challenging. There was a lot of iterations for whether or not the game would be top down. Would it just look like little tokens on a flat map? Or like, do we actually have a full city be visible or stuff like that? That just has been constant uh problems but in the end we opted for this more very practical approach of almost actual like tokens on the map trying to be as clear as possible rather than like going for pure art for atmosphere
1: sake yeah it kind of okay. reminds me of like warhammer like little figurines except you won't be spending five thousand dollars on each unit like to paint and model and build them so yeah. <laughs> it's a lot easier on your wallet um since you said you were a big uh traditional like tabletop board gamer and stuff and Kickstarter has been a bit challenging for video games, it's been wildly successful for tabletop games and being funded for oh, yeah. that. And I would even argue that it's kind of like a tabletop renaissance right now where there's so many more games being made and very innovative games and even down here in LA there's a few stores where it's just like a tabletop uh like cafe or bar almost where you just hang out, you pull off a game from a shelf and play with your friends for a bit and just get to try out different games um did you guys ever think about or would you guys ever think about getting into the physical board game side of things
2: um the actual production of physical goods and distribution of it is incredibly daunting <laughs> to me. um the act of just uh, coming up with a board game sounds like it'd be fun to me because i kind of view board games as Almost pure game design as compared to other things, which involve a lot of other tricks or, you know, like giving, putting you in the mood with music and stuff like that. Like board games, it's just like words on paper. You like if you break it down. Yeah. Um, and so I find that really intimidating and really interesting to try and like, if I were to try and make board game, Uh, unfortunately, I just don't have any particularly good enough ideas that would justify going into it. Maybe maybe someday in the future we'll sit down and, and put a lot of attention onto it, but uh, like with FTL, we considered it and, and talked to some people and, and tried different little mini-ideas, but um, there was nothing compelling enough to justify its existence, in my opinion.
1: Got it. Well, you never know. I mean, I think Dark Souls and Bloodborne both have board game versions of themselves, so... That's right, yep. And Doom and XCOM and... Gears of War. Oh, there's the Gears of War. Game? Jeez.
2: The Gears of War game is very good, supposedly.
1: And so it, that's what's interesting. I've heard. Uh, I've heard both Bloodborne and the Dark Souls games are good, but like Dark Souls tries to emulate the video game as much as it can in like every way, whereas Bloodborne is kind of just like eh, we're basically just the same property, but it's nothing like the actual game. And both of them succeed in both what they're doing.
2: Yeah, I, I definitely find that that more interesting to me. Is just be like. Here's, you know, take a step back. What is the atmosphere of playing this game? What is the feeling of being the player? And then try and recreate that or part of part of that or one element of that in an interesting and compelling way as a board game. Um, trying to just completely manipulate structures that aren't designed for that sort of medium. Mm-hmm. It's interesting in its own way, but I find it, uh, less interesting to me because it feels like you're not taking advantage of, of, uh the the benefits of
1: a different medium gotcha you can f- do more with video games you can factor in because yeah like you said board games are pure game design and play whereas video games you have art you have the music you have the atmosphere you have the storytelling so i would agree with that
0: um i have to ask i always do when we have a game developer on our show uh do you have any parting advice for aspiring indie developers or any kind of words that you wish someone might have told you when you were first starting out?
2: Man, with the changing landscape of indie game development these days, where literally two years, it just feels like a completely different space. I feel like, well, A, my advice would be take advice from successful game developers with a grain of salt. (laughs) Because there's there's a lot of survivorship bias Mm -hmm. in terms of like, you know, what I, like 20 other people may have done the same steps as I, but weren't successful. So just listening to advice from me directly is not necessarily the best idea. But that all being said, <laughs> um, I feel like it's a dangerous time to, to go take a lot of risks. There's too many games. I feel like we are in some sort of bubble. Um, there's more, way more games being made while the pool of money being uh, prevent you know presented developers is r- roughly the same. It's not increasing anywhere near as much as the sheer quantity of games. So if if you're looking to get into indie games, I would say do not bet your life savings. <laughs> do everything that you can to be as safe as possible. Meaning you're taking a side job or you, do, you know, secure funds, or maybe most importantly, the scope is incredibly small. But um for anyone who's just interested in making games in general, I always suggest do game jams <laughs> uh, as as any role with any skill level. It's just really important and interesting to see what the process of making a game is um and what what it feels like to cut your most desired features because you don't have time. Uh I feel like that's a very important lesson for people to take away.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. We've actually had a few uh, Game Jam developers on before I interviewed them, and some of my favorite games are from Game Jams. So, yeah, we would highly recommend that.
2: Cool, that's yeah, great plus advice. Yeah, it's just a fun experience.
1: Yeah. Oh, I think that's all the questions I had, so we don't want to keep you yeah. longer than you have to. So
0: Thanks so much for joining us, uh, Justin. Let's do some plugs. Uh, where can listeners find you and find your games and the stuff that you're working on? Yeah, so
2: Subset Games is the name of our studio. Our next game is called Into the Breach. Um, You could find out at subsetgames.com. Our previous game was FTL. It's available for many years now. But (laughs) um, I, myself, am Justin Ma. My Twitter is Jar Mustard. (laughs) (laughs) I mostly just retweet cool art and pixel art. I don't really... um, I'm too afraid to share personal opinions on the internet. <laughs> that's probably a
1: safe, uh, rule you've set for yourself. Yes, but you could at least find me there and maybe I can, we can chat.
0: <laughs> awesome. Um, how about you, Brent?
1: Uh, I'm on Twitter at ABTS, Brendan, and that's about it. I will cool. be trying my damnedest to get those crystal race in FTL oh nice.
0: nice nice objective there um and yeah thanks again so much for joining us if listener if you like our show please give us a like or follow on facebook and twitter our handles abt silence uh we twitch stream every now and then over at twitch.tv slash abt silence so come hang out and chat but yeah it's been a blast i learned a lot uh, really looking forward to into the breach and i'm gonna have to dive into some ftl
2: awesome thanks
0: guys i recommend our, our listeners do the same and yeah we'll be yeah. back next week see ya bye
2: bye